welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latour. It's August already, and that means it's time for Noir City Chicago. That's right, Noir City returns this month to Chicago's Music Box Theater, Friday, August 25th through Thursday, August 31st. This year's festival celebrates the history of the heist film with the big knockover theme. Noir City Chicago will screen a number of black and white noir classics from the 40s and 50s, including High Sierra, The Asphalt Jungle, and Kansas City Confidential. Two films from the early 60s, including Cash on Demand, plus films from the 1970s, including The Taking of Pelham 123 and Charlie Varick. The most contemporary film shown will be the 2005 Argentine thriller El Aura. FNF founder and Noir City Festival host Eddie Muller explained the festival theme. This year's focus on heist movies provides the perfect opportunity to venture beyond the 1940s and 50s to show how noir has expanded and transformed over the decades. To me, it's one of the most exciting programs we've ever done. Eddie will introduce films opening weekend, August 25th through 27th, and FNF board member Alan K. Rohde will take over hosting duties August 28th through the end of the festival. Noir City Chicago's opening night will be a special event celebrating the 20th anniversary of Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential, with the guest appearance of L.A. Confidential author James Elroy. Elroy will join Eddie Muller on stage to introduce the film, shown in 35mm. And now, let's meet this month's guest. guest this month is Jake Hinkson. He's the author of four crime-themed novels, a novella, a short story collection, and a collection of essays about film noir. He's also written a number of articles for the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine over the past six years. Jake, thanks for joining us. Hey, guy. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with the Noir City Chicago Festival coming up later this month, and you have lived in Chicago for several years and have been to this festival a few times. So um, tell us about your experience going to that festival, the theater, the audiences, and how they've reacted to it since you've been there. Well, it's been great. I mean, the the reception here to Noir City has been, I mean, really, really enthusiastic, and there's always... Great crowds. I mean, a lot of this sh- the shows are, are sellouts, and Eddie's big hit, of course, and Alan's big hit, of course. So it's a lot of fun. Um, Chicago really, you know, I, I think Chicago is a sort of underrated cinephile town, you know. It's a really great town, actually, for people who love movies in general. We have, like, the, the, uh, the Gene Siskel Film Center. We have Doc Films, which is the oldest student-run film society in America um, that goes back to like, I think the forties uh, we have the Chicago film society, uh, which does a lot of great stuff. So it's really, it's just a really great town for cinephiles. I mean, week in week out, you can see interesting, good stuff. And the sort of crown jewel of the Chicago cinephile uh, circle would be the music box theater, uh, which is the place that hosts uh, Noir city, Chicago. Um, which is always, I think, at the end of August. And like I say, I mean, it's been it's been pretty ecstatic. That place is pretty awesome anyway. Lots of interesting uh, films they show day in, day out. But the, the Film Noir Festival is big. It's, a real, it's always a big hit. And this year's festival, the opening night, is going to be a 20th anniversary screening in 35mm of L.A. Confidential from 1997, the great 
neo-noir classic. Um, before we get into that a bit, I just wanted to mention the director and co-writer of that movie, Curtis Hansen. Uh, I'm sure they'll talk about this at the festival as well. He passed away last year, almost a year ago. Very sadly, he had been ill for a number of years. And he was not just a very accomplished filmmaker, but he was also a great champion of classic Hollywood. He had been a film writer and journalist for a number of years. He loved old movies, and he was always promoting them and film preservation and restoration, and in particular, film noir. He was a great champion of of all this stuff, really, that the Film Noir Foundation has um, worked on and been involved with for a number of years. So it was a, a really tragic loss for um, uh, for the film community in general when he passed away. So I'm sure uh, the event will be partly a tribute to him. And this event is going to be introduced with Eddie Muller there on the opening night, and also with James Elroy, the author of the original novel of LA Confidential that it's based on. So that is going to be a terrific event. Um, I've seen Elroy in person a number of years ago uh, at a book signing in um, the late 90s, early 2000s, and also at the Noir City Festival in San Francisco a number of years ago. He was there to help introduce The Prowler, which was one of the Film Noir Foundation's first restorations that... James Elroy in particular is a huge fan of, and he helped out with funding the restoration. So I'm sure that's going to be a great event, and he, of course, is a, a brilliant writer and very accomplished, so I'm sure you're looking forward to being there and hearing some of his stories. Oh, man, of course. You know, Elroy's a rock star, so, I mean, I, I think everybody's, everybody's pretty excited about that. And You know, to see, to see Eddie and, and Elroy together, you know, sort of, I mean, a lot of people are really big fans of their, their commentaries that they've done on films like crime wave and the, the lineup. So uh, to see their, to see their dog and pony show in person is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. Elroy is a real character in person, the uh, demon dog, but I have to say from the uh, book signing that I went to that he did a number of years ago, he uh, in public, he, his persona, like he is in the DVD commentaries or in documentaries is very much how he is with book signings. <laughs> but when people came up to get their book signed by him, he was as nice as could be he signed for yeah. everybody, whatever you wanted. He would write the, you know, the inscription and really he was just totally appreciative of, of the fans and, and as nice a person as you could get for. Um, yeah. I've always heard that. Published, and you know. you know, he just, I mean, he's a, you know, in addition to sort of just being entertaining, I mean, he is a, a fountain of knowledge that whole that whole era there's not just that whole era of filmmaking but that whole era of hollywood history so it'll be it'll be a huge uh huge delight to see to see that particular film introduced by those two guys it should be a lot of fun the book it's based on elroy's novel is i had never read it until after i saw the movie a couple of years later i read it and after reading the book, I realized or came to think that the movie adaptation really is one of the most successful and most difficult adaptations that anyone's ever undertaken because the book, which is magnificent, is incredibly intricate and complicated and long and there's so many different plot strands and characters coming together and the way it all unites at the end is breathtaking how everything ties together in this extraordinary way. And to make a direct or even close to direct adaptation of the book would have taken like 10 hours. You'd have to do it as like one of those HBO season long series these days. So to boil yeah. that down into what was a pretty long movie, about two and a half hours, but to boil it down into one movie was incredible. The adaptation by uh, Curtis Hansen by his co-writer, Brian Helgeland, they, they had to leave out a ton of material from the book, but they still stayed so close to the spirit of it, the characters, the atmosphere, the story. They captured it, even though they had to leave a lot out. It's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, you know, it's, 
the art of adaptation is is something um, that I think people sort of take for granted sometimes. They kind of just assume that if it's a good book, it will make a good movie. And clearly that's not true. Um, many examples have shown us that's not true. And vice versa. I mean, there have been pretty good movies made from pretty pretty bad books. But what what's amazing about LA Confidential, it sort of reminds me in a way of something like, um, speaking of Curtis Hansen, who was a big fan of this movie, it reminds me of uh, In a Lonely Place. Because In a Lonely Place is, you know, a great book, a really great book, that was made into a movie that is, a, you know, a sharp turn away from what the book is. So it doesn't happen very often that you get a, a great book that's made into a movie that's very, very different from the book and yet somehow is great in its own way. Like that's sort of, that's, that's sort of magic striking twice or something. With those in particular, I mean, in a lonely place at the time, right in the heart of the classic film noir era and Ellie confidential with Hanson and his crew being so steeped in film noir and being such great lovers of it. They just capturing that general style or that general ethos, if you will, um, just informing what they were doing. That's why I think they were able to succeed so uh, so well with it, because even though they had to change a lot of the details, they really were still staying very much within that atmosphere, and they, they always were sticking to that approach. I think that's yeah, have you, seen the, um, have you seen the Curtis Hansen introduction to In a Lonely Place? It's on one of the DVD. Yes, yes. He yeah. talks about some of the locations. and that, I mean, he just, you know, it's like a guy like that was just so steeped in it, you know, I mean, in such a deep way. Yeah. Like you said, it's a huge loss. And there'll be some, uh, a number of other great movies coming up in the Noir City Chicago Festival. Some of them that have been in the previous Noir City uh, satellite festivals or the original in San Francisco from earlier this year. One in particular that I really love is uh, Classe du Risque, which is a French film from 1960 with uh, Lino Ventura as the lead, who was always terrific in those French crime films. And Jean-Paul Belmondo, very young Belmondo in one of his very first roles right after Breathless. That's an excellent one. And some great, um, very hard-hitting heist movies from the 50s from Hollywood. One of them is Plunder Road, terrific film from the late 50s, directed by Hubert Cornfield, who was a very interesting character. He didn't make very many movies, but several of the ones he did are really striking. He had a very strong sense of style. So Yeah, Hubert Cornfield, Herbert Cornfield's one of those guys that uh, you kind of get the sense when you see his movies that he knew that he was making a film noir. You know what I mean? Like he some some of the people who made those films, a lot of the people who made those films at the time in the 40s and 50s, you know, because the term film noir wasn't sort of bandied about a, a lot and the, the, all the sort of, uh, you know, theory about noir had not really taken shape yet. But Cornfield was one of those people that I think um, that was very conscious of what he was doing. When you see his movies, it seems like he's very conscious. And Plunder Road, I mean, is so great. I, I can't wait to see that on the big screen. Um, that's one of those films that's, I think of Plunder Road is sort of like almost the most working class of heist films, you know, and heist films kind of tend to be working class, uh, crime movies to begin with, you know, it's sort of guys doing a job, but there's something like very punching in, punching out, doing it. Definitely. Yeah. And that's, that comes across really strongly throughout that whole movie. Another, uh, very interesting one he did a few years later, I don't know if you've seen this called the third voice. They showed that a number of years ago in San Francisco at the Noir City Festival. I was lucky enough to see it. It's it's pretty hard to see. I don't think it's in circulation very much. Is that the one with Edmund O'Brien? Yes, Edmund O'Brien and Lorraine mm -hmm. Day and Julie London. 
Yeah, I have seen that business in a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really good. And um, so this screening for Plunder Road is going to be introduced. Uh, that's when Eddie Muller will still be in town introducing the screenings. So he and Alan Rohde both, I've seen them introduce some of Cornfield's movies. They have some very, uh, shall we say, interesting stories. Hubert <laughs> Cornfield, he was apparently quite a character. So uh, <laughs> don't miss that screening if you can get to it. It's uh, for any listening, that's going to be... It's going to be great fun. And you can ask those guys if you're at the festival for some cornfield stories. <laughs> They've got some good ones. Um, another great movie that's going to be showing at this festival is Drive a Crooked Road from the mid-50s with Mickey Rooney, where he's a the getaway driver for a heist. Uh, excellent movie, and, and one of his best performances, I think, without a doubt. He was tremendous in that movie. Yeah, you know... Driver Crooked Road, I, I wrote a piece for Noir City a few years ago. Um, well, I wrote a couple pieces. I wrote one about Mickey Rooney, and then I wrote one about the director, Richard Quinn, or Quine. Um, and Driver Crooked Road is, is a really fascinating movie, you know? I, I, I think as the years go by, Mickey Rooney has sort of diminished, you know? I, I don't know that his... Like I don't, I don't think you know he was he was this famous child star. He was the biggest star in the world at one point, but I don't think that his you know the Andy Hardy movies have shown the kind of longevity that something like you know Wizard of Oz, which is still classic, still kids you know kids still flock to see it, or Shirley Temple, who you know still has a pretty big fan base. I don't know that that Andy Hardy movies kind of have that that longevity. Um, but if you look at Mickey Rooney's noir stuff, the stuff he did when his career started to go downhill and he was sort of flailing about and trying to find, you know, something that would work. He went through a phase where he tried in the fifties where he tried crime movies. And so he did something like quicksand, uh, which is pretty good. And he did drive a crooked road, which is excellent. I mean, just an, I think it's one of the best film noirs of the of the fifties, frankly. And he's he's excellent in it. You, you know, if you've only seen Mickey Rooney, you know, singing and dancing, uh, then you would be shocked to see the kind of like quiet, nuanced, really, really touching performance that he gives in Drive Drive Crooked Road. And that movie, and really all the ones we've been talking about here, Drive Crooked Road and Plunder Road, uh, Class to Risk, all these movies, and many more in the North City, Chicago. If you like your noir uncompromised without any <laughs> cop-out endings, then you've come to the right festival, or you'll be yeah, going to right. the right festival. These are some hard-hitting movies. Yeah, you won't <laughs> have to sit through very many happy endings. I'll attack on happy endings. Right, that is not what you're going to be getting in this festival for sure. The point is, I don't want you to get lost. I'm not going to beat it if that's what you're afraid of. I'll say you're not. Well, I'm going to see that you sell this car so you don't get caught. Thanks. Of course, your interest wouldn't be financial, would it? You wouldn't want a small percentage of the profits. Well, now that you insist, how can I refuse? A hundred percent will do. Fine. I'm relieved. I thought for a moment you were going to take it all. I don't want to be a hog. So, Jake, you've been writing for the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine for a number of years now, since back in 2011. How did you get started writing for the magazine? Gosh, has it been that long? 2011. Um... It started, uh, as all good things do, over the internet. Well, to go all the way back, it was, um, it was through MySpace. That's, this is how far back we're going now. That is a blast from the past. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Paleolithic era here. The Film Noir Foundation had a page on MySpace, and a guy named Eric Beatner, who now, who, who used to write for the uh, what was then the North City Sentinel, and he still writes some stuff for the North City, was managing the page, and he and I just sort of struck up friendly, you know, conversation about. I think it was too late for tears. I, I think we bonded over a shared love of too late for tears. And this is years before the film noir foundation restored it. So we were, we, we were cool before you know, anyone else was. So, but anyway, we were talking about uh, that and we were, he said, you know, he, I think he had written, he had read something that I had written online and said, Hey, you know, would you be interested in um, maybe writing for the Sentinel? And, you know, I was, very excited about the, that prospect. So I, uh, yeah, started doing some stuff for them. That was back when the Sentinel was still kind of just a, you know, kind of more based on like a newsletter right, um, kind of thing. So I think my first piece for them was like a, what would today be kind of considered a listicle. It was like the best brawls and in, <laughs> in film, film noir. You know, it was like the best fight scenes ever. Um, but as it went on, you know, and the, and the, the journal started to expand, I got to do bigger and bigger stuff, which is, was really exciting. I mean, I got to do some, some really fun pieces for them. Let's get into now a couple of the profiles you've done for the magazine over the years. So there was one you did on Tom Neal, the star of Detour from, this is from Noir City. Noir City Magazine number six edition from winter of 2012. The article is called Tom Neal, the Broken Man. So let's, uh, let me quote from your introduction to the article here. As you wrote, he is in many ways the forgotten man of film noir. Although he is the star of one of the most heralded films in American cinema, he remains overshadowed by his co-star and his director. While Detour has been proclaimed a cinematic masterpiece, Lead actress Anne Savage, christened a noir icon, and director Edgar G. Ulmer canonized as a poverty road genius, poor Tom Neal still can't catch a break. To the extent that he's remembered, he's remembered for the ruin he made of his life. Even his posthumous glory is swamped in failure and disgrace. That's a rough start to the article for <laughs> what ended up being a rough life for Tom Neal. So, let's, uh, so tell us a little bit about him. Well, you know, I guess the place to start with Tom Neal is to say that He's he he is the forgotten man of film noir in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, Detour holds a, a very special place in my heart. It's I mean, just about my favorite film, I think. But beside, but outside of that, it's, the thing about Detour is that it is a perfect encapsulation of what we mean when we talk about film noir. It's it's the perfect philosophical distillation of what noir is, and. It's a film that a lot of people love, you know. I mean, it's this sort of ratty, uh, you know, cheap uh, B movie that is, in a lot of ways, the most important movie that ever came out of Poverty Row. And the people who get the most credit for that are Edgar G. Ulmer, who was a great director, and Anne Savage, who was you know, a great star. But the thing about Tom Neal is that he's the center of that film. I mean, he is he is in um, almost every scene. He's uh, the spirit that hovers over the whole thing. And the fact that his life went south in such a dramatic way is a big big part of that. Neal was um, he was born pretty rich. Uh, 
he was born in uh, Evanston, uh, Illinois, which is a uh, suburb of Chicago. His family were bankers from Arkansas originally. Since I'm from Arkansas, I was always fascinated by that when I found that out. Um, and he grew up with a lot of perks, a lot of advantages of wealth, and and moved to New York when he was a kid, uh, when he was a young man. Got involved with a woman named Inez Norton, who uh, had been the mistress of Arnold Rothstein, the gangster. And so this was sort of, they, they made all the papers and were sort of a national scandal. Um, and as, as I say in the article, this was sort of Tom Neal's initiation into bad publicity. I mean, before he had done anything, you know, the first thing people knew about him was that he was this, he was in this scandalous relationship with this, this, this gangster's girlfriend. So that broke up and uh, to make a long story short, he gets a job at MGM uh, starts making movies for them. His first film actually was a Jacques Tourneur crime film called They All Come Out, which was, I think, 1939. So he gets fired from MGM, which, you know, was a bad idea. MGM was the biggest movie studio in the world. It was the best job you could get in the movie business. And so to get fired from MGM was bad. It meant that you were going to fall. Uh, pretty far, which he did pretty quick. Um, started doing like cheapy serials and stuff. Um, wound up at Columbia uh, for a couple of years in the 40s and started making a series of films with Ann Savage. They were paired together at Columbia first. Uh, and their films really didn't make much impact. Um, they were both kind of on the downward slopes of their careers. And after that, after their time at Columbia washed up, they wound up at um, PRC, which is where um, they were paired again for Detour by Edgar G. Ulmer. And it was really Tom Neal that got Ann Savage the job. He was he was the one who read the script and said, hey, this would be great for, for me and Ann Savage. You should put us in it. And so they did, and it became the, the Detour that we all know and love. And then you get into the details in the article of his ill-fated life outside of the movies after that. His most famous slash infamous incident he was involved with was with the actress Barbara Payton, who was romantically linked with, uh, who had been going out for a while with Francho Tone, the old star from the 30s. And Neil and Tone got into a fight where Neil punched him out and uh, almost killed him, apparently, and it was a huge scandal. So Neil and Payton were together for a while and a very... Kind of scandalous uh, union, and then um, as you well, mentioned, well, let me say let me say a word about that. So, sure. the, what's what's funny? What's funny there is that you know Neil and Peyton coming together was really sort of like two two uh, storm clouds meeting, you know, and for, forming a superstorm. Uh, you know, she had been she had sort of started out the top two uh, and fell fast. She had started out being uh, in Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye with James Cagney and. But in about a year, had washed out because of jugs, because hanging out with gangsters. And then she met Tom Neal at a swimming pool in Beverly Hills. And just they immediately glommed on to each other. This despite the fact that she was supposed to get married to French Tone. And yeah, he, I mean, when when we say that he, he beat up French Tone, I mean, he, he very nearly killed him. I mean, he, um, he crushed his face in. He put a, gave him a cerebral concussion. And you know, barely escaped 
uh, going to jail that time. And so, so that pretty much washed out his career at the studios, pretty much washed out Barbara Payton's career at the studios. And then they went on the road at one point. Uh, Tom Neal had this sort of brainstorm that they should do a traveling road show of uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, sort of cashing on their notoriety. And they did a performance, I think, in Philadelphia, where um, Barbara Payton got so drunk she passed out on stage. So, so much for the theater that they kind of had to stop that. And then they moved on, and his career was pretty much over at that point. I mean, he he did a couple of TV things. He did one last, one of his very last um, appearances in show business was on a, on a TV show in which he was paired one last time with Ann Savage. Then he called it quits in the early 50s, said, well, I guess I'm done with this, and became a, a bouncer at a, at a cocktail lounge called the Dollhouse. Did that for a while, tried to open a restaurant, that failed. In the mid-50s, his, his life sort of, um, it sort of stabilized for a while. He got married. He'd been married once to a young actress, a very young actress, like 16 years old, named Vicki Lane. That had ended badly, recriminations and uh, bad, another, you know, more bad, bad publicity. And, but in the mid fifties, he married again. Um, and this time it seems to have been a, a, a fairly solid marriage. He had a child, um, a son uh, named Patrick Thomas Neal. He opened a, a landscaping business, which apparently was quite successful. Things were going pretty good until his wife died. She had cancer. And when she died, things kind of went downhill for him. He lost his business. Um, he, he sort of seemed to spiral. And within a few years, he got married for a third time, uh, once again to a much younger woman, a woman who was about 25 years younger than him, named Gail Evett. Uh, and they were married for a few years. Um, it, was it was apparently a very bad marriage. Uh, she told her friends that she was afraid of him, that he drank too much, that he was incredibly jealous, which echoes things that Vicki Lane, his first wife, had said. Um, and then in 19, I think it was 1961, on April 1st, uh, he killed her. He shot her uh, in the head, apparently as she lay sleeping. And they brought him to trial um, for murder, um, but he was not convicted of murder. Instead, um, there was some sort of legal shenanigans. He was convicted on the much lesser charge of um, manslaughter and was sentenced to I think about 15 years and was sent to jail, served about six years, um, got out in December of, I think, 71. And, you know looked terrible. You can see pictures. I came across pictures in my research of him uh, when he got out of prison. And he looks looks pretty awful. And he wasn't that old. I mean, he was, I don't think he was even 60 yet. Uh, but he looked, I mean, he looked 70, 75 or something. Uh, and so he tried to sort of, you know, carry on. Uh, but he died a few months later. Actually, he died on August 7th. 1972, which is today. It's This is the 45th, as we tape this, this is the 45th anniversary of the death of Tom Neal. So. 
the um, how's that for synergy? <laughs> right, and in the article, and as you mentioned, the when he was married and started his landscaping business and had his son and then his wife at the time died of cancer. That seems to be the real, I mean, as it would be for anyone, that was just such a tragedy. And that, that seems to be when things just inevitably went down for him. And it seems like that was his one chance to really have some happiness and things were looking up for him. And it just fell apart from this terrible tragedy of her illness. Yeah, you, you, you get that sense. You know, it's funny, the, the piece I wrote on Neil was probably, I think about five, maybe 5,000 words long. And it was something that I really got into when I was writing it and was really fascinated by. And like I say, you know, I mean, Detour's an important film for me. And so I was just, I wrote the piece because I was just fascinated by Neil and fascinated by his life. But people have asked me uh, after they read that piece, you know, do you think you would want to write a book on him? You know, it seems like he, you know, was sort of this, you know, interesting character and there's a lot of, you know, twists and turns in his life. And, but I, you know, honestly, I, I don't think I could spend two or 300 pages with Tom Neal. He, he's someone that, uh, there's not a lot of great things to say about him, at least in the, you know, I mean, obviously I didn't know him and, uh, maybe he, you know, certain friends and family, maybe he you know, would see him in a different light. Uh, but the things that I've, read about him uh, and things that and things that I've read you know in, in his own words just doesn't seem like a guy you want to spend that much time with having said that I think you're absolutely right I do really do think there was this this sort of window there with his second wife when he had his child and his business was doing pretty good that it seemed like um, he had you know stabilized that things were maybe going to be okay for him and then after that it just spiraled pretty pretty terribly a very sad and ending, you know the, sure. yeah a very sad ending and and the 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 brutal irony of all of this of course is that back that his life took such a frankly noir turn uh is one of the things i think that sort of made detour so fascinating to people you know and still makes detour fascinating to people because when they watch it and they think oh this you know, there's 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 sort of weird elements of uh, the real world here. You know, and one of the reasons I wrote, I wanted to write this piece about about Neil was that I wanted to to watch all his other films. You know, because I, I I thought well, you know, maybe maybe there's a lot of other good stuff there, and there's there's not for the most part. I mean, there are little pieces here and there of, of films that are that are interesting, but the one really good Tom Neal performance is in detour. And I think the reason for that is because it really does capture the kind of insubstantial thing that was there in Neil as a person. It's sort of the perfect merging of, of the role and, and the actor, you know, and in, in a lot of his other films, because he was so, you know, handsome guy, and, uh, you know, kind of muscular beefcake kind of guy. He, he got put into a lot of, you know, leading man kind of roles that he just wasn't, he just could, really couldn't pull those things off. And he wasn't, you know, kind of quirky or interesting enough to be a character actor. So there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of uh, great fits for Tom Neal. But Detour, you know, this, this dirty, grimy little, you know, noir that's, you know, the bleakest, probably the bleakest noir ever. Um, you know, a movie that ends with the lines, you know, fate can, you know, put its finger on you and me for no good reason at all. 
And that's it. That's the moral of the story, right? That's, you know, have a good night. Enjoy your drive home. Life is meaningless. You know? The end. <laughs> We're all going to die. See you later. You know, um, the, you know somehow Tom Neal is the perfect, the perfect center of that. Next week, Driscoll will be driving a taxi. No need to be sore about it. His wife will be making corsages at the Broadway florist shop. You know that's only temporary. Pinning them on women who had more sense than to marry a prize fighter. Look, honey, as soon as I've saved up a little more money, I can buy this gas station, see? And starve to death. There's good money in a gas station. A lot of the fight fans would remember me. Be glad to give me their business. Oh, sure. Two gallons of gas, boy. And don't forget to wipe the windshield. That's enough of that, Polly. I'd have been a star if I hadn't married you. You were a showgirl. I could have been the champion. Yeah, could have been. Let's talk now about another one of the profiles you did for the Noir City e-magazine. This is from the summer 2013 issue, which was Noir City number eight, an article called The Girl They Love to Kill, The Many Deaths of Peggy Castle. And here is a piece or part of your introduction to that article. You may not remember her. Most people don't. She was never really a star, not even in the insular world of film noir, where she was usually cast as an easily disposable sex object. In her most famous scene, she was shot to death while doing a striptease. It was that kind of career. So that's our introduction to Peggy Castle, another very noir in real life story. So what can you tell us about her? Yeah, you know, I guess I'm drawn to to hard luck cases. Um, Peggy Castle is probably best known... Well, you know, I think at the time, her, she was best known for um, the, the first uh, Mike Hammer adaptation, um, I the Jury. And she was in a lot of Mike Hammer stuff, actually. In some weird way, she was kind of the embodiment of, like, the Mickey Spillane woman. Um, she was blonde. She was voluptuous. She was sort of cold. Uh, or not cold, but cool. She was cool. She wasn't hot. She was cool. It was, you know, her misfortune that she didn't get to be in Kiss Me Deadly, I guess. Because a lot of the things that she were she was in were sort of lesser productions, you know. What I say in the piece, like most people haven't heard of her, is true. Even in, even in the world of film noir, um, she was never really a star. And um, that's too bad because there's, whenever you do see a movie with Peggy Castle, there's something intriguing about her. There's something there. Um, that never fully got brought out and really utilized in a lot of films. Um, but in noir, uh, which she did a few important films, she she did um, in those films she sort of pops, I think, a little bit more than she did in other films that she made. So in something like Nine Nine River Street, um, which is this Phil uh, Carlson uh, picture from 1953. You know, she's the third person in the film. I mean, it's really the film's about John Payne and Evelyn Keyes and Peggy Castle's just there as John Payne's duplicitous wife. You know, she's there sort of to be shunted off. Um, but she's the, the the heart of the film in a lot of ways. She's the one that gives it its noir heart. She's the one that sort of makes that pop. And she had that kind of career, you know. I mean, the kind of career where she was the third or fourth or fifth or sixth person down. Um in the film she started out in virginia she was born in um, the 20s 27 moved to hollywood uh at a pretty young age 
gotten pictures by the time she was like 20, 21. Had Charles Feldman as her as her agent, who you know you couldn't get a bigger, more important agent than Charles Feldman when when, when he got her, and he got her a seven picture contract at Universal. Uh, so she started out, you know, doing pretty well. I mean, she, you know, Universal's huge studio. Uh, Charles Feldman's an important uh, agent, but Universal didn't really know how to use her. They didn't really know what to do with her. Um, she complained about that a lot. Um, that she sort of, she said, "I don't know why they they put so many of us on ice." You know, they just they wouldn't really give her the kind of pictures that would let her let her shine. And so after Universal, she kind of like made her way through, you know, lesser and lesser productions. In a lot of ways, Mickey Spillane was sort of her salvation uh, on, on the way down because he had just started producing or he just started putting out uh, the Mike Hammer novels. And in a weird way, she was perfect for those books uh, because she was, you know, blonde and beautiful and kind of cool. She got cast in a lot of uh, adaptations of his work. I had the jury, the long wait, uh, and she would do some TV stuff later on on the Mike Hammer TV show. Those are the films that kind of best capture her. There's a really interesting movie that she made in 55 called Fingerman, uh, which is a picture she did with Frank Lovejoy. It's an interesting movie because their scenes together have, have real um, sensitivity and they, they're actually quite moving. She plays a sort of ex bad girl. Um, sort of maybe implied that she was a prostitute at one point. She's looking for love, frankly. She's looking to be rescued. Um, and instead she gets, you know, spoiler alert, instead she gets killed by Timothy Carey, uh, which was sort of her lot. Uh, the name of the piece I wrote on her was The Girl They Loved to Kill, which was taken from something that Peggy herself said in an interview that she gave once where she said, I'm starting to feel like the girl they love to kill. Because in movie after movie, she she was killed. Um, and she couldn't, you know, in this interview she gave, she's, you know, I can't really quite figure it out, you know, why I'm always getting killed in these pictures. And there is this disturbing trend in her, in her films. And I, the jury... Uh, she gets gunned down at the end in this sort of sexualized, uh, you know, sort of psychosexual scene where she's sort of strip teasing to seduce Mike Hammer and he, he guns her down at the end. Uh, and then in film after film, she gets killed. In, in 99 River Street, she's, uh, she's strangled to death by kind of a, again, kind of a sexualized way. So there's something very icky there. There's something very disturbing there. Um, and so when I sort of caught that, let's say, trend in her work that she I, I started noticing that she started getting that she was always getting killed and always getting killed in these sort of disturbing ways. I thought, well, what is going on here? And when I re- when I found out that she herself had sort of wondered about this, you know, why was this? Um, that made her even more interesting to me. So I really with the Peggy Castle thing that that piece piece kind of took me over for a while i have to say uh, that was that was one that i kind of went down the rabbit hole on because you core you sort of start to uh i don't know you sort of start to feel really attached to some people sometimes when you research them something like tom neal you know when you 
you go, you do a deep dive into that guy's life, you, you really don't find a person there to like. But on Peggy Castle, there was someone there to really love. Actually, you know, she was very, very funny. Um, in, in a very again, kind of cool, kind of witty way, and um, had kind of a, a skeptical view toward the whole Hollywood thing. There was a point early in her career where she had to to do what they used to call cheesecake uh, photos, you know, sort of posing in bikinis and stuff. And it was it was this uh, thing that had been mandated at the studios, and there was a backlash uh, to this, led by um, Shirley Temple, who was then in her ingenue phase of her career. And um, Peggy said, well, those of us who don't do the cheesecake photos won't be eating cheesecake. So it was kind of like that. And so she knew what she was into. I mean, she kind of knew the game and, and understood it. But it never really never really turned out for her, you know. Um, by the mid-50s, she was sort of relegated to doing one of her last pictures was a so-called horror movie called The Beginning of the End, which is a movie where giant grasshoppers try to destroy America. And she and Peter Graves had to escape the giant grasshoppers. Well, you know, once the giant grasshoppers show up, things are it's pretty much over. You know, it really, is, it really was the beginning of the end. Those are the real stars of the movie, right? <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. 100%. And so... After that, you know, she kind of wound up on TV. She did some. Uh, she did a western called Lawman, which is the thing that when she died, most people sort of knew her for. Although that, you know, it's I don't know that Lawman has some great following anymore. So even that, you know, didn't really turn out very well. And then that was it. I mean, by the time she was um, in her thirties, she was pretty much she was pretty much washed up in Hollywood and quit making movies and was hitting the bottle too much and descended into alcoholism. She was married a few times and it was her third husband who she had divorced some years earlier who actually uh, found her uh, when she died. She was living in the Hollywood Hawaiian hotel and apartments uh, and basically drank herself to death. It's horrible to say, but that is what happened. She yeah drink herself to death and, and very young only in her mid-40s right yeah 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 it was really sad and the, the the most shocking detail i found when i was doing my research is that the apartment she died in was just up the street from her star on the walk of fame because you know pretty much everybody got a star basically at that point so she had been on tv for a couple of years in this tv show that no one really remembered so, you know, as a promotional thing, she got her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, and then, you know, immediately was forgotten by everybody. And when she died, she literally lived. I mean, I went to her star and went to uh, where the apartments used to be. And I mean, it's like a three minute walk. And really, as you mentioned, the movie, I think that is certainly the most highly regarded of the ones she did is 99 River Street, which is a great classic and uh, available on DVD and Blu-ray. KL Studio Classics with uh, Eddie Muller on commentary, and uh, yeah, you know, Peggy, let's say, let's Peggy say, as let's you mentioned, pe- is not in the movie. She's not in the movie very much, but she is very, very memorable. She does a terrific job in her small role. Yeah, definitely. You know, and the thing there to to say about Nine Nine River Street, and really, it's to say about film noir, is that Peggy Castle is someone who never had the career that that she would have liked. Never had the career I, I think that she deserved. 
uh, and then died. And, you know, she felt forgotten when she died. And, and you know, when she died, the, the, the papers that wrote up, you know, her obituary, you know, didn't mention film noir, had no, you know, people weren't using that term. They didn't really have the conception of that. They mentioned the movie with the grasshoppers and they mentioned the Western that she'd been on for a couple of years. And that was it. But now you fast forward to now, you know, like you say, Nine on River Street is a film whose reputation, I think, keeps growing. And the fact that it's, you know, it's out on Blu-ray now and the fact that Eddie has a, a great commentary on it, I think is going to bring, you know, more attention to it. So there's a silver lining. Move on now to uh, what is fortunately a much happier story. So there is a movie from the 1950s called Wicked Woman, a cult classic that the Film Noir Foundation has played a big role in reviving for a lot of people. So you had an article on that in the Noir City e-magazine, and let's read from your introduction to that. There's film noir, and then there's lurid pulp. And then there's 1953's Wicked Woman. Depending on what you want out of a movie, this picture is either cheap trash or something pretty close to a masterpiece. Wicked Woman is one of those sweaty adultery dramas that kept erupting like flash fires throughout the supposedly safe and secure 1950s. No marriage was ever safe or secure in these kinds of movies because marriage itself was presented as a battleground of claustrophobia and discontent. The pleasant irony behind Wicked Woman, however, is that it resulted in a long, happy marriage between its director and its star, Russell Rouse and Beverly Michaels. So I wanted to bring this up because not only is this a very fun movie, but it really is a great happy ending after all this depressing stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. So um, Russell Rouse, the writer and director who was very accomplished, who had one of the co-writers of DOA, the great film noir classic, and a number of other terrific movies, including uh, New York Confidential, which is an excellent movie from the mid-50s that was restored on DVD by BCI with uh, Alan Rohde doing the commentary with Kim Morgan. That one is really worth checking out. And uh, Beverly Michaels did, as you talk about in the article, very few movies in her career before she retired from movies to marry Russell Rouse. And it turns out all of the ones she did are film noir or pretty close to film noir. So, and uh, with the family that they raised, one of their sons is Christopher Rouse, a very accomplished producer and editor who in fact won an Oscar. So you spoke to him. He won an Oscar for one of the Bourne movies for editing. Uh, you spoke to him for this article. So what uh, what were his memories of that movie and his mom's career? Well, he he was very uh, he was very happy to um, talk about his mom and talk about her career. She had given up her career uh, to raise her family, which Chris was very appreciative of, of course. Um, but uh, he was very, very excited to talk about her career and to talk about the way that she had sort of become this cult icon, you know, um, like, like you say, you know, she didn't make that many, she didn't make that many movies. Uh, and just about all the ones she made are, are, are noir. And there aren't many, there aren't that many, uh, stars, you know, whose entire career more or less was, was confined to noir, but she's, she's one of them. He, he said that she, um, 
that she was very excited to, you know, to kind of learn that she was a, a cult figure. Uh, by that time, I think she'd become kind of a private person. You know, I don't think that she, you know, fully, uh, you know, like I, she wasn't going to be the kind of person who went out on the, you know, the circuit and, you know, hit all the festivals and that kind of thing. Um, she was kind of more quiet and, uh, than that. But he said that she was very excited about, you know, her career having been sort of rediscovered. By that point, she had sort of devoted herself to, to, the, to the family. She devoted herself to the actor's studio, West. Um, there in Hollywood where she had, uh, you know, she wrote plays and acted in them a little bit there and sort of, you know, was doing it on that kind of level. Uh, and then she was also politically involved, um, with a lot of sort of lefty causes. She was in, um, a group called another mother for peace and, you know, was sort of devoted to those kind of things. So, you know, she had sort of moved on from her career. I think she had sort of said, okay, you know, I didn't have the career that I maybe would have liked, but, you know, I had the one that I had. Then years later to find out that she, well, an icon, let's say an icon of film noir, I think was probably a nice thing to find for her. And of course we can't talk about the movie Wicked Woman without mentioning the great Percy Helton, who was mostly a diminutive supporting actor, both literally and figuratively <laughs> in yeah. movies like in the setup, he's uh, the ring man for Robert Ryan's boxer character. And in um, Criss Cross, he's the, the bartender where Burt Lancaster goes to the bar. And he was a wonderful supporting actor. He was just so great and memorable in every little role he had. And Wicked Woman was really the biggest role he had in any of the film noir movies. And um, it's very uh, a very lecherous kind of role, but he's ter- <laughs> he is just terrific in it. And it's, it's really a Yeah, you movie. know, when, when people say they don't make movies like they used to, what they really mean is they don't make movies with Percy Helton. <laughs> right. Like Percy Helton is sort of just the sort of squinty eyed scum, scummy, you know, lecherous little like embodiment of the, uh, the seedy underside of the 1950s. That's Percy Helton. And nowhere is that more on display than, than wicked woman. I mean, wicked woman is just, like I said in that piece, it's, you know, it's it's for people who want their noir sweaty and grimy and dirty. And and Percy Hilton's a big part of that. There's just something about him that just sort of oozes uh, pervert, <laughs> basically. <laughs> he just he looks like the kind of guy that you'd you'd find peeking in the windows, you know, in the yeah. 1950s. You, you know, Green and Rouse were like the Lennon McCartney of of you know the. 50s B movie, you know, things like DOA and The Well and The Thief and The Great Plane Robbery. I mean, they they were they were terrific. And I mean, Wicked Woman is their their masterpiece. It's just it's it's so great. You know, if you like that, it's the kind of thing that if you like that kind of thing, it's it's gonna be one of your one of your favorite movies. Uh, Chris Rouse told me this story about his parents. He said, you know, they fell in love on that movie, and you know, people would sometimes years later you know, who didn't really know him would, would ask Russell Rouse that one, that one picture you did, wicked woman, that was really good. What happened to that floozy? That was the star of it. He, he would say, well, I married her. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's my wife, man. Come on. Right. Yeah. And that movie is one of the ones that through the Noir City Film Festivals in particular, um, this is the kind of movie that's just elevated so much by seeing it with a crowd that's having fun with it and that's appreciating it. 
Um, cause it's very much like a grimy B movie, like we've been talking about, but it's very over the top and very quotable and, and really fun with the crowd. So you mentioned to me the, um, so the kind of <laughs> appropriately over the top theme song that we heard is the introduction to this segment that, um, that there was a story of someone going to a screening and bursting out in a song, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is really uh, Vince Keenan's story, but he, he told me that story when, when he found out that I was uh, working on this piece about going to, I think it was a, maybe a Noir City screening of it. And he sat down, <laughs> the film starts, you know, and it starts into this, you know, big sort of ridiculous, uh, you know, theme song. And the guy beside him, burst out into song and sang, you know, sang the whole thing word for word through the entire credit sequence. So it's, it's that kind of movie, right? You know? Command performance. And uh, exactly. if that, I don't know, that may have been in Seattle where he saw it, but if he was in San Francisco that year, then I was in that screen too. Cause that's where I saw it in Noir city, San Francisco, a number of years ago. And the fun story I have there is, so it was a huge crowd at the Castro theater. Everyone loved it. And it was the, the double bill that night. It was the bad girls night theme for that, um, for that year at, at the time, every festival, there would be one and in particular the advertised as bad girls night with the femme fatales. So the double feature that night was a cr- pretty crazy double bill of Scarlet street and wicked woman. So, nice. so you get nice. Scarlet street, the just black hearted masterpiece by Fritz Lang, just this crazy intense, you know, expressionist, you know, magnificently dark film noir. And then you follow it up with this like <laughs> grimy B movie. So I went with uh, some of my family, my older brother and his wife, my sister-in-law. And she in particular is a huge fan of the femme fatale characters from these movies. She really loves the bad girls. So she had great fun with that night. And as we were leaving theater, I said, so you like these movies, I hope, right? And uh, she said, yeah, yeah, Scarlet Street was really good. But, you know, I really, really liked Wicked Woman. (laughs) That was what did it for her. She just enjoyed that one more than any other. And I think that is because when you see it with a big appreciative crowd, like we were mentioning earlier, it just brings it to such a higher level and it makes it really a more fun experience. Like if you're at home doing a double feature of Scarlet Street and followed by Wicked Woman, I don't know. I don't think one would hold up very well next to the second one would not hold up very well next to the first one. But with the big crowd, it just makes a huge difference. Well, see, yeah, that's great because, you know, Scarlet Street is sort of art with a capital A. And right. and uh, Wicked Woman is trash with a capital T. <laughs> and, and I say that with only love and respect for trash. So let's wrap up this episode with a um, discussion of your writing, Jake. So you have written a number of books now. You have one that was a collection of film noir essays, including some of the ones for the Noir City e-magazine. And, and then you've written a l- number of books that are really hard-boiled fiction. So tell us about those books and about how you got into that particular area of and the themes and ideas in those books that you've been writing. Uh, well, you know, I guess the first thing I would say is I would make a distinction between hard-boiled and noir. So I don't really write hard-boiled um, as much as I write noir. And the distinction I would make between those two things is hard-boiled is sort of more about toughness. 
Um, it's sort of about being, it's sort of the, the two-fisted, square-jawed, uh, kind of more Mickey Spillane kind of thing, really. Um, and then noir is really about weakness. You know, noir is about sort of the fatal flaw. It's about sort of the thing that undoes you. And that's more what I'm interested in. That's, that's, that's sort of more where my heart is, I think. And that's the kind of stuff I'm drawn to as a reader and as a viewer. And it's the kind of stuff I've always been sort of pulled toward when I'm writing. I started writing fiction before I could do anything else. I mean, it was the first kind of writing I did. Um, and got into noir, you know, at a very young age. I think it was probably, I think Jim Thompson was probably the first thing that I read where I thought, this is, this is something different. This isn't, I love Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. But when I read Thompson, I thought, well, this is, this is where my heart is. This is the kind of thing that I want to do. So I guess to describe my novels, I'd have to, to tell you a little bit about my background, which is that I'm from the South. I'm from Arkansas and was raised uh, in a pretty religious household. Um, uh, my father was a, a deacon in the church and my older brother's a preacher. My uncle was a preacher. We lived for a while on a church camp. So it was a very um, sort of religiously uh, infused kind of atmosphere. So when I started writing fiction and I was drawn to noir, I was drawn to sort of these dark tales of people undone um, by, you know, inner flaws. The natural expression for that to me was stories about people in the church. So I, I write this sort of weird uh, combination of religious drama, not that, that I'm a particularly religious person anymore and not that the, uh, the books are, you know, you couldn't call them religious, but it's about sort of, uh, well, okay. So if it was a subgenre, it'd be like bad preachers, you know, preachers gone bad sort of thing. So it was sort of like um, a Jim Thompson novel, but set in the world of the church, I guess would be um, one way to describe it. So you've been able to travel to France to present some of your writing with your novels. Um, so what has the reception been like there for your books? And what specifically do you think the readers there have been responding to? The reception in France has been pretty amazing. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of crazy to to think about that my my dark, weird little novels about you know preachers who snap and start killing people uh, would be would be so well received there. But but it has. Um, I got translated over there a couple of years ago. Uh, I wrote a book called Hell on Church Street, which. Um, French publisher over there, um, Galmeister Editions, uh, discovered, um, you know, I mean, the books released here were, you know, on very small presses. And like I say, they're kind of these weird little, not really mainstream books. You know, they're really, really dark. They're, but boy, the, the, the French just, <laughs> that's, they love that. So they really snapped that up. And so um, I was, you know, excited to get, to get translated over there. And, they flew me out uh, a couple of years ago for a big festival, uh, the biggest uh, um, crime festival 
uh, in Europe, um, the Katy Polar, which is in Lyon, France. And we did a, like a seven city tour and it was incredible. I mean, I met hundreds of fans. Uh, I, someone recognized me on the train. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty much, it was pretty much a trip, but you know, and part of the reason for that is just how big noir is in France. You know, everyone knows this, uh, but until you're there, you, it's hard to really sort of appreciate how big noir is in France. And the only way I can describe it is to say that it is noir in France is sort of what, you know, science fiction and fantasy is in America. It's sort of this, the dominant genre there. When you go into a bookstore, I, I went into several bookstores all across France and there are two there are two basic sections there is what they call the white novel and then what they call the noir novel noir novel of course are what we think of as noir it's crime novels uh that's half the store and then the other half are blanc or white novels or white books which is basically everything else so it's sort of, you know, that's kind of how it goes in bookstores over there. It's sort of, there's noir and then there's everything else. That's how big noir is there. Yeah, we went to Lyon, we went to Montpellier, Auxerre, Laval, La Rochelle. And it was incredible. I mean, it was just a really incredible reception there. And here's a, here's a funny little detail about uh, being on a book tour in France. They don't really do readings in France. You know, in America, if you go to a, an event with an author, um, the author will read from their work and they might take a couple of questions at the end and then do a signing. But in France, they don't really do readings. Um, you go there and everyone's read the book, which is amazing. They've all done their homework. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's <laughs> done their homework and it's just a Q and a, and everyone's read the book and people ask really, really smart, questions you know really really insightful questions and part of this you know this is something else you sort of discover when you're uh, on the book tour in france is that the reading itself is sort of the national obsession in france i mean everyone reads there it's it's um if sports are the national obsession and America, then reading is the national obsession in France. Um, people go to college to become a bookseller. Every town has little bookstores. Um, bookstores are thriving, and people have a different relationship to booksellers over there. Like they really trust their bookseller. The booksellers, you know, everyone in their town kind of knows their bookseller, and the bookseller knows the people who come into the store, and it's a very intimate. Um, kind of relationship, which this helps to explain sort of why, you know, you can get a good reception there, even if you haven't sold a ton of books in America, because if the right booksellers you know, read your books and start passing them around, then people start saying, oh, we want to, you know, we want this guy to come here. We want to, we want to talk to him about his work. And so that was pretty amazing, you know, and you ask like, why? why I think they like my work in particular. And I think it's actually funny enough. I think it's because of the sort of like weird religious stuff that I was talking about earlier. 
well, okay, so first of all, the French are obsessed with America. I mean, they're fascinated by America. And they, what they don't have um, is much respect for what Americans think is classy. <laughs> so things that, you know, like a movie that would win an Oscar, let's say, um, most, uh, you know, the French might be a little skeptical of, or things that are considered, you know, high class uh, would, would be kind of maybe considered ridiculous. But what the French are fascinated by is what they think of as authentic expressions of, of the country. Like they're really fascinated by America. They're fascinated by the people. They're fascinated by the culture. And so that really helps to explain why the French are the people who discovered film noir and why they are the people who discovered jazz and, uh, you know, uh, bluegrass and, and yeah. whatever. Or going they, back to Edgar Allan Poe, right? Even yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. Uh, exactly, you know, and there you have an example of, you know, someone who was not sort of, you know, commercially successful in America, but the French saw the work as an an authentic expression of something that is distinctly American. And so my, you know, my novels about sort of the, the twisted psyches of, you know, fundamentalist Christians <laughs> um, are, I, I think just, I, I think that that was very interesting to French readers. I know it was because they told me it was. So, yeah. So that approach of your, your approach of that subject matter through that, viewpoint or that lens of the noir um perspective that was something new to many of them i guess is what's really drawn yeah. a lot of them to your work right yeah yeah i think so I, and i and you know that that's one of those things that wasn't by design of course i mean i i would not have designed it that would not have thought to design it that way that's just sort of the weird you know that's just the result of my weird psyche it's just I was steeped in a certain kind of religious culture and tradition that did one kind of number on me. <laughs> and then I discovered, you know, film noir and crime novels, and that did its own number on me. And, you know, the result is, you know, are my novels. So, and they seem to, the French seem to like that. And God bless them. I'm, <laughs> I'm as big a fan of them as they are of me. Right. And uh, what do you have in the works coming up in the future? Um, well, I, uh, I think I might, well, on, the, on the fiction front, I think I might, I have a book coming out over there um, called No Tomorrow, um, which is a novel that's set in the 40s and actually sort of blends together my, my obsession with old Hollywood and... Uh, the, the sort of religious uh, uh, milieu of like the Ozark Mountains, which is where I'm from. So um, the, the book's about a, a, a representative of uh, PRC, actually, um, the, the same company that made Detour, um, who goes to uh, Arkansas to try to sell some of PRC's wares uh, and gets caught up with a preacher and his wife. So anyway, that's what that book is. And so I, I think I hope they'll like it over there. That's been translated and will come out next year. So maybe I'll get to go back um, to France. 
to tour that book. And for uh, Noir City, I have a piece coming out in the next issue that is about the Belgian writer Georges Simenon and his contribution to film noir, which is pretty massive. Excellent. And the uh, there's details on all of your books available at your website, which is jakehankson.com. And we'll have a link to that in the podcast notes for everyone to go check out. So, okay. I think we will uh, wrap things up there. So Jake, thanks so much for joining us here. Hey, thanks so much, guy. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to Jake Hinkson for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media, at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr, and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. If you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back with another episode next month, and until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk. Noir Talk.